You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. I feel like I've got lots to tell you, except I can't. They're one of the things I like had lots to tell you about I can't remember and at some point it will come to me Were you going to tell me about Father's Day which I know is a week ago in listener world but it's only a few days ago in our world Well it wasn't forgotten in my house this year so that was a major step forward I was made a fuss of I got a nice little LED light to read in bed On an elastic strap that goes around your head No not one of those Uh, I got a nice card I was made breakfast It was a good Father's Day Nice Everybody was absolutely sort of on their A game because of last year's fiasco. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? Uh, yeah, Gene made me a nice card. He drew a picture of me as the lead singer of the Finnish entry from the Eurovision Song Contest. Oh, wow. And then they took me out go-boating on the canal, which I loved. It was beautiful. What is go-boating? Well, it's funny you should ask because I bought you a voucher for this for you and the family last Christmas. Oh, shoot. I feel it's become a bit like the vegan cheese in that here's what I think's going on. I think the idea of commandeering a boat is scary to you. So you've chosen to just repress the memory of me ever giving you that gift. Justine did mention it to me some time ago. This is bad. I think this would give you a great family memory. So what it is, this is okay. a small boat. It's a motorboat. Yeah but with an electric engine, and you go along the canals of London at walking pace. And you have to do the barge business, the, the locks business? No, no. The, the section of the canal you're doing it on doesn't have a lock oh, on it. So you just go for, great. if people know London, you go from Paddington. I'd really like to do that. You do, it's, Padding, Paddington to where? You go from Paddington to round the back of London Zoo, and then you turn around and go back again. So there are no locks. Sounds really nice. It's fantastic. How fantastic. Okay, well, look, I now feel very guilty about... Uh, and we could also, we could make vegan cheese while being on the go boat, presumably. Yes, because they have a little picnic table. We, we took a picnic. 
That's fantastic. Right, we're going to do it. Do, because I really, really want you to come back to the podcast with stories of captaining a boat. I will. I might have said this before, weirdly, but I think you would look good as a gondolier. What, what but my outfit? What's yeah, like a stripy jumper, red neckerchief. You're singing Just One Cornetto. I think I would fall into the water with a gondolier, don't you think? Yes, I do. I do think that. But, but also, don't you just love this time of year? Honestly, I know I sound like an old fogey when I say this, but I just wish it could be like this all the year round. I know. Do you think we'd get bored if it was like this all the year round? I don't know. When you meet people from different climates, do they seem bored? Californians. Yeah. They don't seem bored to me. No. They can sometimes seem a little bit too upbeat for my liking. Yeah. So what's the answer? You like that, though, don't you? I know, but do you think you and I should go and live in Florida for three months every year? (laughs) What, like old American retirees? Yeah. (laughs) In the Boca Boca retirement community. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Playing, what was that game you told me about? Wiffle ball. Uh, no, it's. I'm glad you mentioned it because it is. It's like taking off. There was a whole thing about it in the New York Times. <laughs> honestly, like, let, let me tell you, sir. Honestly, like pickleball, pickleball. Uh, that was it. Yes. Developers embrace passion for pickleball. The growing sport has lured investors eager to cash in on its popularity, opening courts in former warehouses and vacant big box stores, and adding food and entertainment and other options. You may laugh when Ed's pickleball. Is a wildly successful business to compete compete with Facebook. You'll be laughing on the other side of your face. Well, there's a, there's a good point in there, isn't there? Because because of cultural imperialism, whatever is big in America almost invariably ends up being big over here. You could be ahead of the curve on. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because when I was in the Treasury in the in the 1990s, you suggested remember, a pickleball. Uh, no, nope, I remember funding for pickleball it, in the 2012 Olympics. It was just when coffee shops were starting to grow. And I remember thinking and saying to people, this coffee shop business, is because I'd been in America where it was a big deal. There was something called the Seattle Coffee Company. I think it was before Starbucks yes. was a deal. Yes. I remember using Google for the first time and thinking, it's fine, but I'm very happy with Alta Vista. So I don't quite have your foresight. I'm actually beginning to think you, this is like a real thing. I wonder if you can play pickleball in the UK. Have you Googled pickleball UK? I am now. My goodness, pickleballengland.org. The home of pickleball in England. Have you got a Join the Pickleball Movement t-shirt yet? There's an English Open pickleball tournament. (laughs) And you, Jeff, maybe you could be the English pickleball champion. The pickleball king of England. I'm just looking at this facility that you've sent me that they built in America. It's also got axe throwing and karaoke, so something for everyone. I'm not so sure about axe throwing. June 29th to July 3rd is the pickleball tournament. I think we maybe need to train for next year's tournament, don't you think? Is there a, is there a special type of ball that is used in pickleball? Who are you talking to? I'm not, I'm not a pickleball maven. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I know I've, you didn't know anything about it, but I'm not the world's expert, mate. I mean, no, but that that could, we could start importing. I mean, we could import pickleballs. We could get into the import oh, and see. export business, well, and the ra- and the rackets as well. Yes, it's a pickleball racket. Mm. I think we should move on now. Now, should we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes. So, do you think this is fair to say it's a slight change to our usual programming? Yes, it is. But it's very much a reason to be cheerful. It is. We're going to be talking about all things fungi and mushroom related. Yep. Now, there are 
so many uh, things to be cheerful about here. Fungi have been tipped as one way we can solve problems around waste, tackling mental health conditions and providing potential solutions to the climate crisis. And with us today, we've got Merlin Sheldrake, who's a biologist and writer of Entangled Life, which you are evangelical about, aren't you? Yes, it's a really interesting book, and I've been listening to it on me diddly-doos. <laughs> he means his headphones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If, if you ever have to go and speak at the UN, maybe I could go and be your translator, but not translating from English, translating from Edlingo into English. That then could be translated. That would be good, yeah. yeah. Um, David Aritzo, who is leading trials at Imperial College London, looking at the impact of psychedelics on depression. And Fern Freud, who is a forager based in Sussex. It's such a great episode, honestly. It's going to make you really cheerful, don't you think, Jeff? It Jer? certainly is. Now, what's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is I am going to see you for the first time in, I don't know how long, because I kind of have lost track of time, but I think it's at least 18 months Yeah. on Friday morning, because we're doing a little thing in advance of our live show on the 17th of July at King's Place in London, which we'd very much like you to come to. And it's, I'm, I'm predicting an emotional moment. When was the last time? can't remember we recorded an episode in your back garden no but that was like 2020 that's the last time i saw you is that really true yes yeah I haven't seen you for two years no bloody hell it's wild isn't it wild so uh so yeah that's my reason to be cheerful that we're going to be reunited in the flesh what's your reason to be cheerful well obviously that makes me cheerful and i've got two others um first of all Typically and characteristically, you've come up trumps on the TV recommendations because we've been scrabbling around and you've recommended hacks because you, you, you realise you've got to filter out quite a lot politics, law. And, and hacks is about a ageing female comedian and a kind of young collaborator that she recruits. I wasn't sure about the first two episodes, but we're now, I think, through four and I'm really enjoying it. And it's sort of un undemanding. It's undemanding. It's fun, and I think the performance of what she what she called the um, she's clearly based on Joan Rivers, right? Jean uh, Smart is just a joy to watch. The script can be a bit shonky at times, but it's short. It moves fast, and it's fun. Yeah, agreed. And then I've got a second one, which wasn't recommended by you, which is we watched a family film called The Mitchells versus the Machine. Oh. What's that? It's basically about this family who have to take on these machines that are about to sort of destroy the world and have arisen out of some uh, tech thing that's gone wrong. But what's really good about it, and I don't remember this from our childhood or my childhood, is it's got some really nice messages, sort of really positive messages. It's got the central character is as it's put on Wikipedia and unassuming the LGBT character Katie – but it's also got really interesting lessons about how you get on as a family, how you should allow your kids space to grow and why parents can be annoying. And it's just really, honestly, I'd really strongly recommend it. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. To start our conversation, I am delighted to say that we are joined by Merlin Sheldrake, who is a biologist and author of Entangled Life, How Fungi make our worlds, change our minds and shape our futures. And I can honestly say it is an enchanting book. Merlin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ed. It's great to be here. 
most people have probably never given Funky much thought, maybe beyond what they see on their breakfast plate or a tree trunk. When you talk about Fungi, what are you writing about? What is the set of things you're covering? Because I think it's quite important to start with that. Yes, good idea. So fungi are a kingdom of life, which is as broad a category as animals or plants, and which means that there's lots of ways to be a fungus. And of this kingdom of life, we've only described around 6% of fungal species. So that leaves over 90% of the fungal kingdom undescribed and unknown. Uh, it's a good way to summarise our ignorance about this. So give us some examples of what, what fungi is. Where does it exist in everyday life? So there are all sorts of ways. Fungi are ubiquitous. They are very important organisms in the history of life and the story of evolution. And their activities today underpin the regenerative capacity of the biosphere. So anything from yeasts, which you'd find in bread or beer making processes, to the yeasts that live on your skin and scalp, to the fungi which live in the soil, the fungi which decompose material. Mushrooms have been used as food. Fungi have been used as medicines. There's evidence that Neanderthals used fungi to treat infections. People have been interacting with fungi for as long as they've been decomposing things, whether that be creating fertile soils in agricultural systems or fermenting foods or making alcoholic drinks. So for people who haven't given it a thought before, what is it about this world that draws you in and makes it so fascinating to you? I'm wondering if it's almost like a sense of an invisible world laid on top of our own world as we know it, that we just haven't really given that much thought to. I think that's a big part of it. For me, I get a sense of vertigo when confronted with profound mysteries about the living world. And fungi, the more I find out about fungi, the more I want to find out about fungi, the more I realise we don't know, and the more I realise how important these organisms are. So for me, there's a sense of mystery, and there's a sense of in the part of my mind that wants to find out how things work, that I won't find out how anything works about the living world unless I think about fungi. And then there's the point about the, the way that they dissolve categories and many of the boundaries that we erect to help organise our, our thinking and our societies. So there are ways in which they can help us think in new ways. They lead us into an interconnected worldview, a worldview in which it's difficult to make clean distinctions between separate organisms. And they lead us into a network view as well. They lead us into a view of decentralised problem solving. They reframe the way we think about waste. There's no such thing as waste for a fungus. They encourage us to think about the importance and power of the organisms that are out of our sight, that lie underneath what we might think of as a surface, a, a barrier. What are the risks of ignoring fungi and these networks? Is our ignorance dangerous? It's a really good question. It is dangerous. You know, we have a kind of fungus blindness and, and what we're blind to, we, we, um, we disregard and frequently destroy. So I'd say that there are opportunity costs. There are lots of ways that we can partner with fungi to help adapt to the many problems we've made for ourselves. And by not thinking about fungi, we lose out on the opportunity to rise to many of these challenges. But there's also the real danger that we will destroy fungi and fungal environments unthinkingly. And you can think about here the evolution of <clears throat> industrial agriculture in the 20th century, which developed without taking much account of the life in the soil and has done enormous damage to, to the organisms that live in the soil and by treating them as more or less lifeless places. And if we think about them, we have the choice to not destroy them or to be more sensitive. I think what is quite magical about the book is you both uncover some of the mysteries of fungi and also admit the mysteries that still befuddle us. You talk about sort of networks, communications, memory, and the way that fungi 
have these things in different ways. And the idea, you call it the wood wide web, I think. One thing perhaps we should introduce is the idea of mycelium. Now, most fungi don't live their lives as mushrooms, which is what we normally think of when we hear the word fungi, but as mycelial networks, which are branching, fusing networks of tubular cells. And mycelial networks are how fungi feed. So a fungal body is a network, a network that's constantly revising itself, constantly growing, constantly changing in response to its surroundings. So they don't have centres of operation. They don't have heads or hearts. They live decentralised lives, uh, which allows them to solve problems in different kinds of ways and uh, optimises them for different kinds of problem solving, so the kinds of problems that we face. The wood wide web is, is a good example of this. Plants form relationships with fungi that live in their roots, mycorrhizal fungi, and extend out into the soil. These fungi form relationships with plants, but f- both fungus and plants are promiscuous and can form relationships with more than one partner. And what that means is you end up with overlapping shared networks of plants and fungi in most ecosystems. And these networks can conduct nutrients or signaling compounds. They can change the way that plants interact with each other. Uh, and they provide highways for bacteria to nag- navigate through the soil. They form the kind of uh, ecological connective tissue by which ecosystems can behave as a whole. But you can think about these networks between plants as kind of complex amplifiers uh, of plant interactions, um, complex amplifiers of interactions between all sorts of organisms. There's a phrase that you use in the book that I'm so intrigued by, which you say that you never behave more like a fungus than when you're investigating them. What do you mean by that? I just noticed, maybe it's, maybe it's just having fungus on the brain, that when I was studying fungi that I started to organise networks of people uh, uh, around me and around the study, that I would start to see things in fungal terms, I think is what I meant. And that these organisms form really helpful metaphors and analogies and allowed me to see further by arranging familiar facts and information into new and helpful arrangements and possibilities and constellations. Now, I was on an island called Cortez Island in 2019, where a famous mycologist called Paul Stamets, I think he lives there, or maybe he spends time there. Um, And Someone who was on the course that I was on came back from meeting Paul Stamets with a mushroom hat, which I thought was a pretty cool thing. He said it needed to be put in the fridge. I think Stella McCartney may have brought out the first ever mushroom handbag. Are there uses for fungi that are not kind of currently being recognised? Yeah, I would say that almost all aspects of fungal life have been underexplored and underinvested in by humans. There are some that are particularly new. So mycofabrication building things, growing materials with fungi is one of these areas. And so you can grow building materials or blocks or board or shapes when you grow fungi into moulds that can be used and replace less environmentally friendly building materials. You can grow leather-like fabrics from fungi, which can replace leather in many applications. You can grow these materials inside on agricultural waste products in a matter of weeks. So this is one exciting area for sure. Why is fungi so underexplored in what we think of as modern science? So within modern science, I think it's, it's partly because fungi were thought of as plants, some kind of lower plant until the late 60s when they won their independence, taxonomically speaking, and became recognised as a kingdom of life. So they're a kingdom of life without a kingdom's worth of attention, a kingdom's worth of funding, a kingdom's worth of university departments and professors and graduate students. But they are also, they're weird, they live their most of their life out of our sight and they're difficult to access. They're difficult to study. They're hard to reach. And so even today, as more people start thinking about them, there are many questions which are just really a pain in the ass to try and solve experimentally. 
I can't help feeling that one of the messages of your book is to sort of get back in touch with nature, if that do- doesn't sound too sort of banal. Um, you begin chapter seven by saying, I lay naked in a mound of decomposing wood chips and was buried up to my neck by the spadeful. What, tell us what was that all about? Well, there's a Japanese tradition which involves having baths in, in piles of decomposing wood chips. And the activity of bacterial and fungal decomposition creates an enormous heat and produces all sorts of enzymes and other microbial activities which are considered to be good for the body, good for the skin and good for the body, in the same way that a sauna might be. And there's a fermentation bath facility in California, which I went to visit, because I wanted to experience this energy of decomposition directly with my own body. Decomposition is something we too often take for granted. You know, decomposition is an enormously important process in the living world. We live and breathe in the space that decomposition leaves behind. And I wanted to immerse myself in that process and to feel um, quite how powerful it was. I think I'm right in saying that your father is in a similar line of business. Is that right? Uh, well, in, in lying naked and decomposing wood chips. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, in my, is, a, is he a mycologist? Is that uh, right? No, he's, well, he's a biologist and he thinks... He's a but biologist. he's not so much a mycologist, but he's, he's a keen student of the right. living world and, and a great naturalist. And in your book, you sort of talk about the way, I must say, it made me feel like an inadequate father, the way he sort of encouraged you to interact with nature. I thought it was really very interesting. And he just encouraged us to take an interest in the living world and the other lives unfolding around us. I am very grateful for that. I retain a great curiosity about the living world to this day. And I feel many people do, whether or not they consider themselves to be biologically aligned or biologically interested, that when stories about these organisms around us, when they learn more about something which they might have seen a million times on their way to work, that that curiosity is very easily ignited. That is a great segue, Merlin, to my mushroom I think Rachel may have sent you the mushroom, this large mushroom on a tree, which I saw on the way to work near my house. Can you talk to us about this this mushroom? Yes. So it's a bracket fungus. It will be decomposing wood of that tree. And I have to say it's difficult to identify conclusively from that photograph. I would need to look at the spores and see the spore shape and have a little section of the, the flesh of the fungus. Yeah. But it could be a rigid porous um, bracket. It could be something else. Just before you go, Merlin, I wanted to ask you about a video I saw you'd uploaded where you had let a fungus grow on a copy of your book. So it eats your book, mushrooms grew from it, and then you eat the mushrooms. What's the bigger idea beneath it? Well, you know, I'd spent a lot of time staring at the computer screen. Finishing a book is a tiring process and it's a very digital process. And so I wanted to fold myself and my words back into the biological cycles that I'd been describing. I wanted to put the book firmly back into the hands of the fungi which were featuring in its pages. So I thought this would be a way to to close that loop and to submit the book for a fungal treatment. And also to think about decomposition. Um, I composed this book, composed these sentences, and now I could let them be decomposed by a fungus. And how were the mushrooms? They were great. I, I was expecting to taste all sorts of foul off notes, that, the consequences of my, of my language. But I would never have guessed that I was eating my words. Uh, they were far too delicious. Well, look, Merlin Sheldrake, a book is Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds and Shape Our Future. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. With us now, we have David Arizzo, who is Deputy Head and Clinical Director of the Centre for Psychedelic Research at Imperial College London. Hello, David. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. How do people react when you tell them that you work with psychedelics? What's the most common thing that people say? I would say most people we run into professionally and also privately think that this is great and exciting. It's not that I hear people saying that that's bonkers or, 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 or directly strange or mad, but people are either curious or just immediately enthusiastic. It's not that I'm met with a lot of sort of resistance or anything like that. And what was your route into this kind of work? Some of my colleagues have fascinating, much more rock and roll entries into this line of work, whereas mine is slightly more boring. So I'm a medic, now a psychiatrist, and I basically went to America, to Columbia University, to learn how to do some molecular kind of imaging where we can measure receptors in the brain and receptor systems. And, and I got trained there and then did work onto the long-term effects on the serotonin system in the brain of psychedelics and, and, and ecstasy. So after my PhD, coming to London, coming to Imperial, working with Professor Nott and Robin Card-Harris. So I worked with them, got more and more interested in working on the other aspect of things rather than looking at toxicity and how these drugs might affect the brain, more like what are the effects of these drugs and what are the psychological aspects of them, their therapeutic potential, and also how these drugs work in the brain when we are using them therapeutically. Tell us about the trials you've been conducting at Imperial, what you've been investigating and what substances have you used? Over the last, I think, around 13 years, we have done a number of different trials, right? So we started out by testing psilocybin, which is the active psychedelic component of magic mushrooms and magic truffles. So we started doing that and tried to see how that works in the brain. So acutely while people are under the experience in a scanner and compared it to placebo and so on, that was the early work we did. Then we kept on doing quite a lot of work with this compound psilocybin and tested it therapeutically for people with treatment-resistant depression. So people who were severely affected by depression and had tried different other conventional therapies and medications for depression. Then we, later we did another study 
in people not necessarily with treatment resistance but moderate to severe depression and it was designed so that people randomly were assigned to either being treated with a couple of sessions with psilocybin in a full psychedelic dose or in the other arm of the study they were getting sort of fake psychedelic sessions so with a tiny tiny dose of psilocybin but then in that arm they got six weeks of daily treatment with a conventional gold standard antidepressant medication called escitalopram that's quite used in, in, in mental health for depression and other conditions. So we compared those two to each other in that study that we published last year. But in addition to that, we have done studies with MDMA and uh, LSD, DMT, now soon ketamine and other compounds. And, and tell us about the results in terms of the psilocybin research that you, you published in particular last year. Yeah, so, so that study basically was mainly designed to try and understand potential differences in mechanisms. We try to understand how does the brain work, how do the conditions work, and also how do these new treatment models work and how might they differ. But we obviously also collected very important data about how efficient would the psilocybin treatments be compared to the SSRI, so the antidepressant treatment. And what we saw there was that the main outcome, and this is where science is irritatingly confusing sometimes, but that outcome didn't statistically separate the two conditions and couldn't determine that psilocybin worked better or worse than acetylpram. However, we had tons of other measures, including very established measures of depression also included in the trial. And all those, all of them, favored the psilocybin treatment. So overall, if you look at the full picture, not just at that single predefined outcome measure of depression, when you look at the whole thing, the study was very positive in the direction of psilocybin. And crucially, tell us this, because you told us what the results were. What is the theory behind this? Just just for our listeners who will wonder, well, why would you be thinking that psilocybin might make a difference to people with severe depression or whatever? What is the theory here? There are different kinds of, uh, of theories. It seems to be that these compounds are sort of opening up, loosening up our ways of, of thinking about the world and ourselves in a way that sort of can reframe and maybe even push and remodel some of our very predefined and sometimes over-rigid ideas, perceptions, models of how the world and how we are and how we are in the world, that that can be reshaped and remodeled through these experiences that induce a high degree of flexibility and plasticity in the brain. So it induces these sort of psychological changes towards more openness, towards more acceptance, towards more connectedness. And that is done on a basis of psychological, highly flexible state and potentially on a more biological level, plastic brain state. It's a very different paradigm to conventional treatments where if we give normal medication in mental health, it works. Hopefully, for typically 60% of people, it works for, for 40, it doesn't if, if we speak about antidepressants. But it works while you're taking these medications daily. This is different. Here you have a, an intervention with a profound change through this altered state experience that last much longer. So not only are single interventions having long-lasting effects and facilitate the possibility of change 
and improvements, but also that actually the experience itself, the nature and profoundness of that seem to have a, a key role. So you can see those things are very different from any other kind of treatment models in mental health. A lot of research was done using these substances in the 1950s, after which they became illegal. How much has that affected this field of research? Is there a queasiness around psychedelic substances in science? Absolutely. They're highly stigmatized compounds. And I think that stigma is wearing off. And it's wearing off alongside the publication and exposure of quite promising and hopefully quite well-conducted and well-covered work in the scientific space at the moment. But the stigma still sticks to it. You have a compound like LSD, and we have worked mainly, as you can hear, with psilocybin, which people don't know. So it's less stigmatized because people can't spell it or pronounce it or know, remember what it is. But LSD, everybody has an idea about what it is. But that stigma, I think, is disappearing a bit, but it has massively damaged and totally delayed an important therapeutic development in mental health, maybe 40, 50 years delay because of change of laws and UN conventions. So there has been a delay that is deeply unfortunate. I guess the silver lining, I think that psychology has developed and matured and new kinds of talking therapies have evolved in the meantime. And some of them might be more ready to actually incorporate psychedelic treatment but yes time has been lost and how real is that fear that people have about losing their mind to put it crassly i would say that the classic serotonergic psychedelics such as lsd dmt psilocybin mescaline they are physiologically so on the body very very safe at the same time they're probably the most challenging drugs mentally psychologically they're altering they are bringing up unconscious material so that is why they are typically used wisely and in trials they're used as safely as we can in people who don't have a history of psychotic illness and so on and then very very well prepared and psychologically supported through specially trained therapists and it's not just that it's an invention in the western world there are similar, even more wise cultures out other places in the world, shamanistic cultures in South America that have used these compounds wisely for many, many generations as well. But but the thing is, they are dis- they can be disturbing, they can be very challenging, they can almost be a bit traumatic if you take it out of a safe psychological context and setting. So therefore, a lot of th- a thought into caution into how you use them, how you administer them, how you support people around it before, through and after is is very crucial for these compounds. These compounds are much more complex in their psychological effects and therefore also needs to be handled with more psychological care. We are cautiously preparing and screening people before these and supporting them through and then it can be done very safely. Right now, massively, the benefits seem to outweigh the risk with this development. The data uh, looks safe and good enough for us to continue, for sure. And you are, I think I'm right in saying, embarking on new trials around anorexia and fibromyalgia. Is that right? And OCD. Yeah, absolutely. So those are our next um, clinical studies. And anorexia is already around halfway through the trial. And um, fibromyalgia and OCD, they're both about to start. We are uh, we're working towards a utopia on this podcast called The Jeffocracy. And (laughs) say we appointed you as chief psychedelic science officer. So you're the person who we're trusting to tell us what our policy should be, how to spend the money, 
What would you recommend government does to support this? Is it a question of funding more research? Is there something that we would be ready to press go on? Yeah, I mean, a big and important question. And of course, I would say, yeah, please, 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 more money to great science and more of what we are doing. And I think every scientist would always say that because actually it is quite difficult for us to get uh, governmental money, to be completely honest. In addition, I would say, let's say that these compounds are going through, which they are, the latest phases of clinical development and approval phases, right? Some of them are in the last phase. And that means that at some point within the next few years, they will probably, if the data hold, they will get a license, they will be approved. Then where's the system to receive it? There are people working on it, but that could massively be scaled up. Also, you need to change some of the physical spaces. I mean, the NHS, I have work, I work in it. I'm a consultant psychiatrist. I have a, a role, not right now, because we're doing the research mainly, but a lot of it is deeply unappealing environments in the mental health space, which is weird. It should be a very enriched, very supportive and aesthetical and pleasant environment. And some of these psychedelic therapy models hopefully will bring some of that back in because of of the pleasant space, the beauty, nature, music. I mean, that sounds expensive, but it doesn't have to be expensive. We have used some IKEA stuff and tried to do it cheaply. We work with artists to bring in beautiful art pieces. We are working with musicians to create music for our therapy sessions. All that hopefully can inspire on a larger scale into the NHS and mental health in general, I would hope. But the, the system needs to be willing to receive, scale, train, prepare and find new systems of how that works. Also set up peer support systems for these treatment models. David Arizzo, it's incredibly interesting work that you're doing. And it feels like something that is just in the air at the moment, something we're going to be hearing and reading more about over the next few years. Thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you so much. Now, to take the conversation in a slightly different direction, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Fern Freud, who is a foraging guide and runs the Foraged by Fern walks. Fern, let's start with a bit about you. Talk to us about foraging for mushrooms and and how you got into it. So I had a kind of sketchy path into the mushroom world. My dad, when we were very young, I'd say I was probably about 10, decided that his new hobby was mushroom hunting. So he he collected up the kids, he sent us off to the woods and he basically said, right, put one of every kind of mushroom you see into this basket. So we did that. And then we got home with a full basket of mushrooms. And he said, okay, I've got some books. So go through the books. And if you think you found an edible one, put it in this basket. And then he, you know, we diligently kind of did our mushroom duties. He went off to the kitchen and then came out with a very suspicious bowl of mushroom risotto, which he then proceeded to try and feed us all. And I was the oldest. (laughs) I was the oldest child. So I was like, don't eat it, guys. Definitely don't. I'm sure mum said something about mushrooms being really dangerous. So none of us ate it apart from dad, who was thankfully okay. From then on, dad wanted to keep doing mushroom hunting. I was the sensible child that, you know, kind of had to join in and learn about how to keep us all safe. And then it's just gone on from there. It just sparked such a passion. We started learning as a family and now I run uh, guided foraging walks and do kind of online guides and advice for people who want to get into foraging and foraging for mushrooms. And if we, we came with you on one of your walks or went on one of your workshops, where would we go to look for mushrooms? So you always want to be looking at ancient woodland. Um, the mycelial structures need to kind of be undisturbed. 
And also the great thing about mushrooms is once you find a spot, so, you know, if you find a great patch of chanterelles, the chances are they're going to come back again next year. I mean, it's so extraordinary this. I mean, I'm going to sort of reveal myself as a complete sort of um, philistine here, if that's the right word. I suppose I was always taught as a child, like, if you see a mushroom or anything in the woods, you know, it's really dangerous and it'll poison you and all of that. Talk to us about that aspect of this. Definitely. I mean, in the UK especially, we are like a nation of microphobes. Like, we are so scared of mushrooms. And mushroom hunting really isn't kind of ingrained in our culture. But, you know, in places like Italy and Poland and Russia, foraging for mushrooms is just like a a family activity. So people, you know, their summer holidays, they'll go out, they'll pick mushrooms. And there is a lot less fear. But having said that, the fear isn't completely unfounded. You know, we do have deadly mushrooms in the UK that I see on almost every walk I go on. So having that fear of mushrooms is is a sensible thing because it stops you from just eating whatever's there. <laughs> and and Fern, I'm not going to suggest people try this at home on the basis of your advice on this podcast, but how do you tell a benign mushroom from a deadly mushroom? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's no one hard and fast rule that will help you tell a deadly mushroom from an edible mushroom. It's a really long and lovely journey of just getting to know each different species and working out, okay, is this one edible? Yes. And how am I going to tell it apart from any lookalikes? Okay, now I've got a question. This has gro- is growing on my street. <laughs> he wants to know, can he eat it? If he eats that, will he lose wanna... his mind? Will he be running naked around Doncaster right, North? Okay. I mean, it is an absolutely enormous mushroom that has grown on a tree. It was it was seen smoking by a friend of mine recently. I mean, not smoking as in having a bag. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, it was like in the heat. It was like smoke or something was oh, coming off. Oh, right. That must be the spores. Yeah. I'm going to kind of try and have a look so I can see if I can help you with your mushroom request. You know, all throughout mushroom season, I receive so many blurry pictures of the top of a mushroom <laughs> and people saying, can I eat this? But actually, you know, it's a real study. You need to look at... Um, the, the porous underside or the gills, you need to look at the cap, you need to know what tree it's growing under. You know, there are so many things. As a mushroom hunter, you almost become this little detective and you need as many clues as possible. And sometimes a blurry picture of a mushroom will not cut it. Fair enough. <laughs> there you go. My mushroom disappoints, Jeff. I'm so sorry. And just just sell us, what do they have over like mushrooms bought from your local supermarket? So essentially, you know, you go to the supermarket, you might be able to find like three, maybe four varieties of mushrooms. And they're, you know, some of them taste quite good, but they're all just generally quite mushroomy. Whereas when you're hunting for wild mushrooms, the variety is insane. So you can go home with a basket of like 10 to 15 different varieties of edible mushrooms, all with different textures and tastes. So there's one mushroom called like a beefsteak mushroom, which you would never find in the supermarket, which literally looks like a piece of like bleeding meat. So it's like juicy and red and it looks like a steak. And when you fry it, it browns or like sears on both sides. I would definitely think that was poisonous. <laughs> yeah. What does it look like when you pick it? So it grows in a bracket off the side of the tree. Like it's weird. It's got a, um, a shiny kind of red cap. And then the underside is kind of like a bright yellow sponge looking thing. But when you cut it, it bleeds. So it just looks 
bizarre. But yeah, it's an amazing vegan meat alternative. What do they bleed? What do, what <laughs> just does juice, bleed? just like mushroom juice. That is extraordinary. I'm, this is like a whole new world, Jo. <laughs> it is. I think you and I should go foraging together, Jeff. You are more than welcome to join me on a workshop, guys. Oh, we yeah. want to. <laughs> and I suspect now that we've had this conversation, I'll notice lots of mushrooms if I'm out in the countryside or something. I mean, how hard do you have to look to find these mushrooms? Not at all hard if you're in the right spot in the right season. So mushroom season really kicks off September, October, and it will run all the way through kind of to December, depending on the weather and the climate. But if you take a walk in an ancient woodland in October, November, you're going to see so many mushrooms. And I've got this idea in my head from spending time in nature that you can pass a spot one day and there's nothing there. Mm. And then the next day, there's the most enormous mushroom you've ever seen. Is, (laughs) Is that real? Do they grow super quickly? Yeah, they grow so quickly. So some mushrooms will grow from nothing to full size in like five days. So I've got a friend who swears that he fell asleep in a field once and there were no mushrooms and he woke up and he was in a fairy ring of mushrooms. Had he eaten any (laughs) mushrooms before he fell asleep? Probably. (laughs) And so Fern hashtag foraging TikTok and now has 85.5 million views. Talk to us about sort of where things are at in the foraging community. Yeah, cool. Well, I guess foraging has been growing in popularity over the last five years or something, maybe. I think it's just something that brings people so much joy. I mean, obviously, over lockdown, people really wanted to deepen their connection to nature and really get to know their wild spaces. It just makes you feel so entwined with the land. I think that fear that is instilled in us as children really separates us and it keeps us apart from nature. It kind of reinforces that idea that our food comes in plastic boxes like all all of our food is from the land and it's just actually going out learning those ancient skills of knowing how to find the food that is good i think that's just really special important knowledge that that we need more of as a society and is that weird for you i'm guessing when you were a teenager there weren't that many of your peer group who uh, you could persuade to go foraging with you <laughs> and now there's all these people you're you're on tiktok instagram facebook i mean the idea idea that this would become a trend, you know, part of everyday life must be mind-blowing to you. Oh, I love it so much. I used to get so embarrassed. People would be like, what are you doing this weekend? And I'd be like, oh, you know, going shopping. And we'd just be in our wellies, like putting <laughs> mushrooms in a basket. But um, no, it's so nice now that so many people are involved. And it means that there's an amazing community around it as well. So, you know, if you want to find someone to go foraging with, there's so many places online and, you know, you can make friends on TikTok or Instagram. And then all of a sudden, you've got a little hunter-gatherer tribe to head out with. And can I ask you, because the image we have, ancient woodlands, countryside and so on, what if you live in a, in a city, in an urban environment? Are there places to go to find mushrooms? Oh, definitely. Even in London, you know, I've got lots of foraging friends who, who do urban foraging. And, you know, they might have to travel a little bit if they want a really kind of deep, dense woodland. Um, but even things yeah. like wild herbs, wild greens, they can be found and gathered absolutely anywhere. Never pick next to a busy road and such. If you know an area is polluted, avoid it. But really, anywhere you are in the country, you're going to be able to have access to loads of amazing wild ingredients. So let me now ask this question, which I don't know whether Jeff thinks this. I think when I go and tell my family about this in an excited way, my wife is going to say, like, not on your <laughs> nelly. Are we going? Are we trusting you to take us mushroom picking? You're yeah. going to poison us. 
what is the way to kind of convince people that it's going to be safe? Yeah, so honestly, I would say try and get yourself on a guided walk. And there are people all over the country who do them. It's a really fun day out. And even if you just come away with one or two mushrooms that you're like, I feel so confident about those two mushrooms. They've taught me exactly how to tell them apart from any poisonous lookalikes. And we've seen the poisonous lookalikes. You will have that confidence. And then after that, it will just be a really, really slow journey of learning maybe one more mushroom every you know, couple of months or something and adding it to like your repertoire. Do you think uh, uh, Justine would be persuaded by that, Ed? <laughs> I don't know. What do you do? What do you think Sarah will think, Jeff? Here's what I think, Fern. Like, I'm really loving what you're describing, but I'm worried that I would end up with lots of cuts and scratches on my hands. Oh, cuts and scratches. I mean, I know I said mushroom hunting, but you don't have to like tackle them down in a <laughs> in, like a thicket of brambles. So. I can't go out and do it this weekend because obviously it's not mushroom season. Mm. What are you foraging for at the moment? There, so there are some summer mushrooms. So there's chanterelles at the moment. They are absolutely gorgeous. But for me, summer is really about medicinal herbs. So the spring is really about kind of fresh greens. And that's when we get all our veggies like wild garlic and fresh nettle tops. And then in the summer, quite a lot of our greens become really strong and, and a little bit more bitter. So we have things like yarrow, which is really good for like wound healing. We have plantain which is really good for like insect stings and bites and also there's loads of wildflowers out at the moment well look fern freud it has been absolutely eye-opening to talk to you jeff i think we've got to go we've got to go foraging Definitely. with fern don't you think? you've got to come i'm reserving you spaces whether you like it or not if people who are listening <laughs> want to know how to get onto your your guided walks how do they do that fern sure so my website is um foragebyfern.com and it's got a big list of all the events we've got also if you can't get down to west sussex there's brilliant practitioners and foragers all over the country who also offer foraging walks thank you so much thank you so much for having me guys it was a pleasure to chat to you well speaking for myself jeff i'm going to look at moldy bread in a different way <laughs> I've got in my head, do you remember the old mushroom marketing board jingle from the 80s? Make room for the mushrooms. Well, funnily enough, I remember the jingle, but I don't remember the mushroom marketing board. I thought you were making that up. No, I think that's what it was. I think there is something quite, I don't know what, I think there is something about this whole network world. I mean, Merlin's basic point that we ignore. Mm. I wonder if in some point in the future they're look, going to look back on this period of history as divide it into before we had the revelation that fungi were the answer to so many of our woes and and after do you see what i mean yeah we're just about noticing plants nowadays because they're above ground but then there's this other world which we don't really acknowledge and and then the stuff david was talking about in the next couple of years we're going to be hearing so much about it you the writer michael pollan who i think wrote about food and sustainability and um plant-based foods a while ago he has turned his eye to this in recent years and he wrote a book on it and i think there's a major netflix series coming out about the potential of using psilocybin in mental health treatment and i th- i think we might even see like a revolution in that in in coming years And then Fern has inspired us to forage. Not only that, but Fern has been back in touch. Oh? Your mushroom on that tree, do you want to know what it is? I do. A tinder polypore. 
She's given you a Tinder profile. It's not related to Tinder, is it? I don't know. Try swiping left on it and see what happens. Have you looked it up? Yeah, I've got the uh, Wikipedia entry here. It's also known as Tinder fungus, false Tinder fungus, hoof fungus, Tinder conch, Tinder polypore, or Iceman fungus. Is it also known as foams fomentarius? This mushroom has got a lot of aliases. What has it got to hide? But there is something in here. I'm sort of not really putting it very well, but I think there is something here about do you see nature as threatening or inviting? Do you know what I mean? Yes. There's a bit of a theme developing over a few different episodes, actually, isn't there, about how detached from nature and how inaccessible and perhaps how um, afraid of nature we can be in our country. Yeah. I'm really pleased we did the episode. And if people have other ideas for some less predictable reasons to be cheerful episodes, they should email us and they can can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com. We really enjoy it. And of course, a big takeout for me has been that it's pronounced fungi and not fungi, which ruins that old kid's joke about why would you invite a mushroom to a party? I don't know, Jeff. Why would you invite a mushroom to a party? Because he's a fungi to be with. Only he isn't. He's a fungi. It doesn't make sense anymore. Still a good joke. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, ho, ho. We're in the outro. Well done. You have sent me a photograph. Yes, yes, yes. Now... <laughs> It's, yes. I'm, I'm presuming this is a, a photograph of, of something you've cooked. Well, it wasn't actually cooked at the moment that I sent it to you. And it's basically some stuffed peppers, which I think probably it's the best picture I've taken of my food, isn't it? It is, because you sent it to me. and I, It doesn't look like faecal matter. No, I rubbed my hands together with glee when you said I'm sending you a photograph of something uh, I made at the weekend. I thought, oh, here we go. I'll be able to make fun of it. Yeah. But it looks uh, it looks semi-professional. Yeah, thank you. It looks good. I, I would eat that. Um, what I don't understand is why they are in a very deep pan, like the kind that you see in the prison in Paddington 2. From that he makes his mama. You didn't then boil these in water, did you? Shouldn't they? they did they not just go into the oven? No, that's interesting. That it's a New York Times recipe. Oh. You boil you boil it for forty five minutes in a water, lemon juice, and tomato paste thing. And how how did it turn out? Put it this way: I gave Justine one, and I took one myself, and then she asked for a second. Wow! As we know, she is perhaps yeah. your next harshest yeah. critic after me. Yeah. And just one question. Yeah. Which of your two kitchens is this taken in? Oh, thank you very much. Well, this looks like something I would eat in a vegetarian cafe in an art centre. If I'm absolutely honest, I'd give it sort of six and a bit out of ten. It was perfectly, it was edible and fine. It wasn't like, oh, this is great. Well, look how far you've come. Well... I've come a little way. Yeah, so we should thank our guests. We should get some good mushroom recipes. Yes, well, I, I quite liked um, the stuff Fern was describing to yeah. us, actually. Yeah, yeah. so uh, thank you to Merlin Sheldrake and to David Arizzo and Fern Freud. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. He's been a Tinder Polypore. He's been a Chanterelle. And these have been Mushrooms to be Cheerful. 
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.